From the Earth to the Moon, Jules Verne, Chapter 12, Urbi et Orbi. The astronomical, mechanical, and topographical difficulties resolved, finally came the question of finance. The sum required was far too great for any individual, or even any single state, to provide the requisite millions. President Barbicane undertook, despite of the matter being a purely American affair, to render it one of universal interest, and to request the financial cooperation of all peoples. It was, he maintained, the right and duty of the whole earth to interfere in the affairs of its satellite. The subscription opened at Baltimore extended properly to the whole world, Urbi et Orbi. This subscription was successful beyond all expectation, notwithstanding that it was a question not of lending, but of giving the money. It was a purely disinterested operation in the strictest sense of the term, and offered not the slightest chance of profit. The effect, however, of Barbicane's communication was not confined to the frontiers of the United States. It crossed the Atlantic and Pacific, invading simultaneously Asia and Europe, Africa and Oceania. The observatories of the Union placed themselves in immediate communication with those of foreign countries. Some, such as those of Paris, Petersburg, Berlin, Stockholm, Hamburg, Malta, Lisbon, Benares, Madras, and others, transmitted their good wishes. The rest maintained a prudent silence, quietly awaiting the result. As for the observatory at Greenwich, seconded as it was by the 22 astronomical establishments of Great Britain, it spoke plainly enough. It boldly denied the possibility of success, and pronounced in favor of the theories of Captain Nicholl. But this was nothing more than mere English jealousy. On the 8th of October, President Barbicane published a manifesto full of enthusiasm, in which he made an appeal to all persons of good will upon the face of the earth. This document, translated into all languages, met with immense success. Subscription lists were opened in all the principal cities of the Union, with the central office at the Baltimore Bank, 9 Baltimore Street. In addition, subscriptions were received at the following banks in the different states of the two continents. At Vienna, with S. M. de Rothschild. At Petersburg, Steiglitz and Company. At Paris, the Credit Mobilier. At Stockholm, Tota and Arfuridsen. At London, N. M. Rothschild and Son. At Turin, Ardouin and Company. At Berlin, Mendelssohn. At Geneva, Lombard, Odier and Company. At Constantinople, the Ottoman Bank. At Brussels, J. Lambert. At Madrid, Daniel Weisfeller. At Amsterdam, Netherlands Credit Company. At Rome, Tolonia and Company. At Lisbon, Lechesne, at Copenhagen, private bank, at Rio de Janeiro, private bank, at Montevideo, private bank, at Valparaiso and Lima, Thomas Lachambre and Company, at Mexico, Martin Duran and Company. Three days after the manifesto of President Barbicane, four million dollars were paid into the different towns of the Union. With such a balance, the gun club might begin operations at once. 
But some days later, advices were received to the effect that foreign subscriptions were being eagerly taken up. Certain countries distinguished themselves by their liberality. Others untied their purse strings with less facility, a matter of temperament. Figures are, however, more eloquent than words, and here is the official statement of the sums which were paid to the credit of the gun club at the close of the subscription. Russia paid in as her contingent the enormous sum of 368,733 rubles. No one need be surprised at this, who bears in mind the scientific taste of the Russians and the impetus which they've given to astronomical studies, thanks to their numerous observatories. France began by deriding the pretensions of the Americans. The moon served as a pretext for a thousand stale puns and a score of ballads in which bad taste contested the palm with ignorance. But as formerly the French paid before singing, so now they paid after having had their laugh, and they subscribed for a sum of 1,253,930 francs. At that price, they had a right to enjoy themselves a little. Austria showed herself generous in the midst of her financial crisis. Her public contributions amounted to the sum of 216,000 florins, a perfect godsend. 52,000 rix dollars were the remittance of Sweden and Norway. The amount is large for the country, but it would undoubtedly have been considerably increased had the subscription been opened in Christiana simultaneously with that at Stockholm. For some reason or other, the Norwegians do not like to send their money to Sweden. Prussia, by a remittance of 250,000 dollars, testified her high approval of the enterprise. Turkey behaved generously, but she had a personal interest in the matter. The moon, in fact, regulates the cycle of her years and her fast of Ramadan. She could not do less than give 1,372,640 piastres, and she gave them with an eagerness which denoted, however, some pressure on the part of the government. Belgium distinguished herself among the second-rate states by a grant of 513,000 francs, about two centimes per head of her population. Holland and her colonies interested themselves to the extent of 110,000 florins, only demanding an allowance of 5% discount for paying ready money. Denmark, a little contracted in territory, gave nevertheless 9,000 ducats, proving her love for scientific experiments. The Germanic Confederation pledged itself to 34,285 florins. It was impossible to ask for more. Besides, they would not have given it. Though very much crippled, Italy found 200,000 lira in the pockets of her people. If she'd had Venetia, she would have done better, but she had had not. The states of the church thought that they could not send less than 7,040 Roman crowns, and Portugal carried her devotion to science as far as 30,000 cruzados. It was the widow's might, 86 piastres. But self-constituted empires are always rather short of money. 257 francs. This was the modest contribution of Switzerland to the American work one must freely admit that she did not see the practical side of the matter. It didn't seem to her that the mere dispatch of a shot to the moon could possibly establish any relation of affairs with her. 
and it did not seem prudent to her to embark her capital in so hazardous an enterprise. After all, perhaps she was right. As to Spain, she could not scrape together more than a hundred and ten reals. She gave as an excuse that she'd had her railways to finish. The truth is that science is not favorably regarded in that country. It's still in the backward state. And moreover, certain Spaniards, not by any means the least educated, did not form a correct estimate of the bulk of the projectile compared with that of the moon. They feared that it would disturb the established order of things. In that case, it were better to keep aloof, which they did to the tune of some reals. There remained but England, and we know the contemptuous antipathy with which she received Barbicane's proposition. The English have but one soul for the whole 26 million inhabitants which Great Britain contains. They hinted that the enterprise of the gun club was contrary to the principle of non-intervention, and they did not subscribe a single farthing. At this intimation, the gun club merely shrugged its shoulders and returned to its great work. When South America, that is to say Peru, Chile, Brazil, the provinces of La Plata and Colombia, had poured forth their quota into their hands, the sum of $300,000, it found itself in possession of a considerable capital, of which the following is a statement. United States subscriptions, $4 million. Foreign subscriptions, $1,446,675. Total, $5,446,675. Such was the sum which the public poured into the treasury of the gun club. Let no one be surprised at the vastness of the amount. The work of casting, boring, masonry, the transport of workmen, their establishment in an almost uninhabited country, the construction of furnaces and workshops, the plant, the powder, the projectile, and incipient expenses would, according to the estimates, absorb nearly the whole. Certain cannon shots in the Federal War cost $1,000 apiece. This one of President Barbicane, unique in the annals of gunnery, might well cost 5,000 times more. On the 20th of October, a contract was entered into with the manufactory at Cold Spring, near New York, which during the war had furnished the largest Parrot cast-iron guns. It was stipulated between the contracting parties that the manufactory of Cold Spring should engage to transport to Tampa Town in southern Florida the necessary materials for casting the Columbiad. The work was bound to be completed at latest by the 15th of October following, and the cannon delivered in good condition under penalty of a forfeit of $100 a day to the moment when the moon should again present herself under the same conditions, that is to say, in 18 years and 11 days. The engagement of the workmen, their pay, and all the necessary details of the work devolved upon the Cold Spring Company. This contract, executed in duplicate, was signed by Barbicane, president of the gun club of the one part, and T. Murchison, director of the Cold Spring Manufactory, of the other, who thus executed the deed on behalf of their respective principals. Chapter 13. Stones Hill. When the decision was arrived at by the gun club, to the disparagement of Texas, everyone in America, 
where reading is a universal acquirement, set to work to study the geography of Florida. Never before had there been such a sale for works like Bertram's Travels in Florida, Roman's Natural History of East and West Florida, William's Territory of Florida, and Cleland on the cultivation of the sugarcane in Florida. It became necessary to issue fresh editions of these works. Barbicane had something better to do than to read. He desired to see things with his own eyes and to mark the exact position of the proposed gun. So without a moment's loss of time, he placed at the disposal of the Cambridge Observatory the funds necessary for the construction of a telescope and entered into negotiations with the house of Breadwill and Company of Albany for the construction of an aluminum projectile of the required size. He then quitted Baltimore, accompanied by J.T. Maston, Major Elphinstone, and the manager of the Cold Spring factory. On the following day, the four fellow travelers arrived at New Orleans. There, they immediately embarked on board the Tampico, a dispatch boat belonging to the Federal Navy, which the government had placed at their disposal. And getting up steam, the banks of Louisiana speedily disappeared from sight. The passage was not long. Two days after starting, the Tampico, having made 480 miles, came in sight of the coast of Florida. On a nearer approach, Barbicane found himself in view of a low, flat country of somewhat barren aspect. After coasting along a series of creeks abounding in lobsters and oysters, the Tampico entered the Bay of Espiritu Santo, where she finally anchored in a small natural harbor, formed by the embouchure of the river Hillsborough at 7 p.m. on the 22nd of October. Our four passengers disembarked at once. Gentlemen, said Barbicane, we have no time to lose. Tomorrow we must obtain horses and proceed to reconnoiter the country. Barbicane had scarcely set his foot on shore when 3,000 of the inhabitants of Tampa Town came forth to meet him, an honor due to the president who had signalized their country by his choice. Declining, however, every kind of ovation, Barbicane ensconced himself in a room of the Franklin Hotel. On the morrow, some of the small horses of the Spanish breed, full of vigor and of fire, stood snorting under his windows. But instead of four steeds, here were fifty, together with their riders. Barbicane descended with his three fellow travelers, and much astonished were they all to find themselves in the midst of such a cavalcade. He remarked that every horseman carried a carbine slung across his shoulders and pistols in his holsters. On expressing his surprise at these preparations, he was speedily enlightened by a young Floridian who quietly said, Sir, there are Seminoles there. What do you mean by Seminoles? Savages who scour the prairies. We thought it best, therefore, to escort you on your road. Pooh, cried J.T. Maston, mounting his steed. All right, said the Floridian, but it's true enough, nevertheless. Gentlemen, answered Barbicane, I thank you for your kind attention, but it's time to be off. It was 5 a.m. when Barbicane and his party, quitting Tampa Town, made their way along the coast in the direction of Alifia Creek. This little river falls into Hillsborough Bay, 12 miles above Tampa Town. 
Barbicane and his escort coasted along its right bank to the eastward. Soon the waves of the bay disappeared behind a bend of rising ground, and the Floridian Champagne alone offered itself to view. Florida, discovered on Palm Sunday in 1512 by Juan Ponce de Leon, was originally named Pasha Florida. It little deserved that designation, with its dry and parched coasts. But after some few miles of track, the nature of the soil gradually changes and the country shows itself worthy of the name. Cultivated plains soon appear, where are united all the productions of the northern and tropical floras, terminating in prairies abounding with pineapples and yams, tobacco, rice, cotton plants, and sugar canes, which extend beyond reach of sight, flinging their riches broadcast with careless prodigality. Barbicane appeared highly pleased on observing the progressive elevation of the land, and in answer to a question of J.T. Maston, he replied, My worthy friend, we cannot do better than sink our Columbiad in these high grounds. To get nearer the moon, perhaps, said the secretary of the gun club. Not exactly, replied Barbicane, smiling. Do you not see that among these elevated plateaus we shall have a much easier work of it? No struggles with the water springs, which will save us long, expensive tubings. And we shall be working in daylight instead of down a deep and narrow well. Our business, then, is to open our trenches upon ground some hundreds of yards above the level of the sea. You are right, sir, struck in Murchison, the engineer. And if I mistake not, we shall ere long find a suitable spot for our purpose. I wish we were at the first stroke of the pickaxe, said the president. And I wish we were at the last, cried J.T. Maston. About 10 a.m. the little band had crossed a dozen miles. To fertile plains succeeded a region of forests. There, perfumes of the most varied kinds mingled together in tropical profusion. These almost impenetrable forests were composed of pomegranates, orange trees, citrons, figs, olives, apricots, bananas, huge vines, whose blossoms and fruits rivaled each other in color and perfume. Beneath the odorous shade of these magnificent trees fluttered and warbled a little world of brilliantly plumaged birds. J.T. Maston and the Major could not repress their admiration on finding themselves in the presence of the glorious beauties of this wealth of nature. President Barbicane, however, less sensitive to these wonders, was in haste to press forward. The very luxuriance of the country was displeasing to him. They hastened onward, therefore, and were compelled to ford several rivers, not without danger, for they were infested with huge alligators from fifteen to eighteen feet long. Maston courageously menaced them with his steel hook, but he only succeeded in frightening some pelicans and teal, while tall flamingos stared stupidly at the party. At length, these denizens of the swamps disappeared in their turn, smaller trees became thinly scattered among less dense thickets, a few isolated groups detached in the midst of endless plains over which ranged herds of startled deer. At last, cried Barbicane, rising in his stirrups, here we are at the region of pines. Yes, and of savages too, replied the major. In fact, some Seminoles had just come in sight upon the horizon. 
they rode violently backward and forward on their fleet horses, brandishing their spears or discharging their guns with a dull report. These hostile demonstrations, however, had no effect upon Barbicane and his companions. They were then occupying the center of a rocky plain, which the sun scorched with its parching rays. This was formed by a considerable elevation of the soil, which seemed to offer to the members of the gun club all the conditions requisite for the construction of their columbiad. Halt, said Barbican, reining up. Has this place any local appellation? It is called Stones Hill, replied one of the Floridians. Barbicane, without saying a word, dismounted, seized his instruments, and began to note his position with extreme exactness. The little band, drawn up in the rear, watched his proceedings in profound silence. At this moment the sun passed the meridian. Barbicane, after a few moments, rapidly wrote down the result of his observations, and said, This spot is situated 1,800 feet above the level of the sea, in 27 degrees 7 minutes north latitude, and 5 degrees 7 minutes west longitude of the meridian of Washington. It appears to me, by its rocky and barren character, to offer all the conditions requisite for our experiment. On that plain will be raised our magazines, workshops, furnaces, and workmen's huts. And here, from this very spot, he said, stamping his foot on the summit of Stones Hill, hence shall our projectile take its flight into the regions of the solar world.